how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. In this episode, I sat down with Tori Tunnel, a producer known for Holy Rollers, My Blind Brother, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Underground, Robin Hood, Spinning Out, and now the new series on Apple, Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. The series stars Kurt Russell, Wyatt Russell, Andrews Holmes, Kirstie Clemens, Ren Watabe, and Anna Sawai. The plot reads, set after the battle between Godzilla and the Titans, revealing that monsters are real. We follow one family's journey to uncover its buried secrets and a legacy linking them to a company called Monarch. In this interview, Tori talks about the mechanism of film, both in terms of creativity and commerce, jumping in the deep end with little to no experience, how she cold called billionaires back in the day, misdirects any career, being persistent yet not annoying, sticking with a project until it gets made, and how to actually make some money in this business. We also mentioned Tori's husband and producing partner, Joby Harold, who I interviewed back in episode 348 for Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Misha Green, the showrunner of the series Underground, who I talked to back in episode 3. Here's my conversation with Tori. When I was in high school, I really wanted to work in magazines, actually. And I wanted to, um, you know, I had uh, dreams of becoming the editor-in-chief of Vogue, and which is funny now because it, it's, I'm not really... Um, obsessed with fashion in that way. Um, and, but in college, I was interning at the New Yorker and I was interning at Harper's Bazaar, but I started to minor in, in, um, in film. And in fact, I went to Johns Hopkins University where everyone's always saying, you know, what kind of doctor are you? Um, but they wanted me to be the first film major. And I thought, what a useless degree from Johns Hopkins because no one will in any way take that seriously. And also uh, while my film um, love was starting to really emerge, um, didn't know if that was necessarily exactly where I was going to go. Um, and as I was graduating from Johns Hopkins and sort of thinking about magazines versus film, um, Tina Brown, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, was, was leaving to go start a new magazine with Harvey Weinstein, who, you know, just for <laughs> anyone listening at that moment, Harvey Weinstein was thought to be uh, it was at the top of, of uh, Miramax and, and every year he was winning the Oscars and we didn't yet know all of the, um, the terrible history of, of who he, who, who he became. But at that time, you know, her starting a magazine with him was like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly, this is the, the combination of, of the two um, uh, dreams that I have. And so um, I was, um, I immediately wrote a, a letter to Tina Brown saying, you know, I, I my dreams match yours. Um, I, you know, I, I want to be both in magazine and film. And, um, and I got a response back saying that they're not starting the magazine for eight months, but would you like to come in and interview? And I went in for an interview and it was funny because I, I, I so well remember the head of HR saying, you know, what would you like to do? And I, I had told her about the Tina Brown piece and, um, but it, knowing that that wasn't starting, I said, I want to be in development. I want to develop movies. And she said, okay, great. Those jobs pay about $16,000 a year, but I have a job working for the CFO that pays about $28,000 a year. And as someone who um, at the time was living in a one bedroom with two other women, I felt like I'll take that one when <laughs> it pays more. And, and initially I was, I felt really disappointed because I was um, in a different building than the, than the 
creative development team. And I was with all these finance people. And I felt um, like, what am I doing? But it was actually what was so kind of incredible about it in hindsight is it, it exposed me to the business of film. And it made me really understand that um, I, I got you know to see all the budgets of all the movies that were going through the system at the time. I got to see the, the budgets of the, of the company um, and really start to understand the mechanism by which the, you know, the reality is, is that film is, is both an auteur medium and it's an artistic medium, but it's also, um, you know, you're, you don't just have paint and a canvas. It's something that requires uh, money. And so you have to be thinking of it to, to some degree in the commerce way. Um, and so I think that what was great about that is that when I went on to go work in a small mom and pop shump, uh, company and they hired me because, you know, I said, I uh, don't have the experience of other people you're interviewing, but I will work harder than anyone you could possibly meet. And, uh, and they sort of bought my story and hired me to become a CE. And, and it just happened that later that day, the head of development quit and they never replaced him. And so I sort of learned how to do my job on the fly. I just started calling people and saying like, I have to call agents. What do you say? Um, and, you know, I didn't want them to know exactly how an experience I was. So I really sort of jumped into the deep end and just started to, um, to, to start to understand how to work in development, how to, to get material, how to talk to agents, how to read and compress that information. I had been also a paid intern during my time at Miramax. So I had started to um, really understand how to analyze stories and think about how to quickly be able to pitch it up to your boss and have them understand what it is. And if it's going to be something that feels on brand and all those kinds of things that you start to hone your skills on. Um, but our offices were also very close to the World Trade Center. And, um, and we weren't able to access our office for about six months, um, after 9-11. And I, my bosses came to me and said, um, Hey, you know, we're going to have to really, um, uh, shut down the company and we're not gonna be able to keep your job here. And I said, well, what if I raise money for the company? And they thought I was adorable. I was in my mid twenties and they're like, oh yeah, no, that's so cute. And I said, but if I, if I raise money for the company, can I get a title bump? Can I get a raise? And they said, sure, that's so, you know, adorable. And I, um, and I went off and I started, I actually just had a, um, an old intern who's now working at Netflix. Um, you know, he found my email and we had a, a catch up yesterday and he, we were talking about this moment in time, which was so funny, but I, um, I had my intern start trying to find comb the internet to see if they could get anyone of notes, email or phone numbers. And I started cold calling billionaires. And we now know that Mark Cuban is very responsive and he has his email out in the public. Um, but I emailed Todd Wagner and Mark Cuban and I still have the email. It's so funny to me, but I said, you know, our business sensibilities match each other's. And he had not, Mark hadn't started to, he wasn't a public figure yet. He hadn't started Magnolia Films, which he did a little bit before he ended up investing in this company that I was working for, but he responded. And I always sort of felt like one of my favorite movies is Working Girl. And there's a Trask Radio, Trask Radio moment. And I had seen this little blurb in the New York Post when I was working out, um, you know, it's just a short article about how Mark Cuban had loved some movie and I felt like he'd be a great target. He probably loves film and we should pursue him. And sort of leaning on that really sort of 30,000 foot view understanding, having started off in finance, I was able to sort of put together an English major business plan with the company and able to sort of talk to, um, you know, get the ball rolling for my bosses to then engage um, and have that conversation that ended up leading to the a formation of a new company called HTNet Films. And they suddenly had, you know, millions and millions of dollars behind them. I also, my my roommate, um, Joby, um, my producing partner and husband, who actually I, I saw that you also had interviewed this uh, this morning when I was looking to sort of 
see, under, better understand your format. We were young and poor and we lived in a 600 square foot apartment, um, again, in one bedroom, again, with another uh, couple. And my my friend, our roommate, had worked for Donnie Deutsch. And I had also been hitting her up to see if we could get Donnie to invest in the company. And it was really within weeks of each other where both Mark and Todd wanted to invest in the company. And so did Donnie. And so suddenly we had this, you know, not only did I have my job, but we had a lot of resources and a lot of money to um, to go in and make movies. And so um, it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but it's something that it's 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 falling into something that, you know, I, it was sort of the birth of a dream where I, I knew I wanted to be in something that was sort of adjacent to entertainment starting to really study and, and fall in love with movies through the course of my studies at Johns Hopkins. And then, you know, that one sort of fluke where I had pursued magazines, but the job wasn't available and it sort of led me into this new path. And, and I always think that it's, you know, whenever I talk to people who are uh, trying to figure out what their path will be, I always think that it's, you know, you want to, you want to take everything from those moments that you have along the way, things that feel like misdirects things. You're like, I don't want this job, but it's like, how do you suck the marrow out of the bone? Cause it might actually end up becoming really helpful because then within a couple of years, I decided that I would do that for myself and, uh, and raise money and reach out to people and, you know, have a little bit of gumption, a little bit of, um, uh, confidence to go out and, and call, cold call people. And, uh, and in this case, through a relationship I had came into a group of investors and started safe house in 2005. Um, and so that really allowed us to then flex our muscles and then jump into sort of the independent producing world, um, where, you know, it all sort of happened from there where you start to really feel like, what do I want to see? What do I want to make? How can I make it? What are the resources? What are the relationships we have and how do we get started? And, um, and so safe house pictures, uh, which is, is crazy. It's going to be almost 20 years old in a couple of years, um, was started with, you know, this sort of scrappy mentality and, 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 a, and a little bit of naivete, you know, I think I, I wouldn't do it today. I wouldn't call cold call. I know too much. I would feel, uh, I wouldn't even know how to sort of present myself in that way, but then it, you, um, have all the confidence, none of the knowledge, and that gives you a lot of power and strength. So that's how, how the whole thing got started for me. And then from there, it's just been, um, it's just been, it's been so built on um, and so much fun to, to both be part of the changing conversation that's been happening in film. I mean, I feel like in 1999, it was like the matrix. It was being John Malkovich. It was American beauty. It was such a cool time to actually join the film community. And, and it was so inspiring. Um, and I think that, you know, there's been so many stepping stones since that moment um, that have been an evolution in the conversation in film. And, and we've had so much fun rising to the occasion, sometimes failing in our attempts to rise to the occasion, but, but seeing sort of the, the, the ever-changing um, direction of film and television. It seems like 1999 is right when it started to maybe shift towards TV too. The Sopranos was coming on that same time. Right. Tell me more about this pitch to go back a little bit, because so many screenwriters, a lot of screenwriters listen to the show, they're focused on trying to sell their one story, but was it, were you selling more of a vision for the company? We want to make movies like this. Is that what you were saying to these billionaires? Yes, I, for sure. So, you know, with the, the first, um, um, company raise with, with, um, with Donnie Deutsch and with, um, Mark and Todd, um, for both open city films and for HD net, what ended up becoming HD net films. That was something that like, once we had those contacts and working on the business plan was actually working on with a bona fide, I think probably MBA, um, doesn't need that once we had to become more grown up with it. Um, but, but really trying to frame and, and in that version of it, you know, really 
um, shining a light on what my bosses were doing and talking about the story of who they were and the story of what they wanted to do in this, um, based on what they had done in the past. When starting Safe House Pictures, it was, you know, I think that with everything, you're telling a story that you really believe in. And I think that it's, it, you know, to your point, it's sort of the, the same when you're pitching a movie or if you're pitching a company, in this case, a company that's wanting to make movies and television, but really thinking about what we were passionate about, what kind of stories we wanted to tell, what kind of filmmakers and 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 actors we believed in and thought were, um, you know, either on the rise or we already had relationships with or ones that we were excited about and wanted to to come to meet. And thinking, and you know, in 2005, the safe house um, agenda is very different than what it is now because we were you know, we were drafting behind, you know, movie the killer films and um, and open city films and um, Ted uh, this and that, which was Ted Hope's company at the time, and people that were making really interesting and thoughtful films where you could go to Sundance, sort of reliably sell a film, and actually have that be a business model. Um, but as I was coming up, that started to really die out, and so you know, I always tell people again that um, with the first three years of Safe House, we had money from investors who gave us a really, you know, um, uh, you know, foundational salaries just so that we we could put food on the table. Um, and and in return, they would take all the producer fees until they sort of made even. And then then we, you know, the sort of the, the, the split would change. Um, but at that time, it was really the moment when everything was changing and, and the film independent film market was really starting to sink. So um, our amazing investors did not really see a profit on, on the original, you know, um, version of Safe House Pictures. And so by the time that that end of that three year run had happened, I remember um, our, our incredible lead investor, Barry Traub, saying to me, you know, um, this shouldn't be a hobby. You're not making enough money to have this be a job. And I think that to his point, I think over the course of the first three films, like what happens with producers is uh, on independent films is, you know, there's always an overage. There's always something that you don't anticipate. You never have enough money. And, uh, and the first thing that goes is the producer fee. And you always end up saying, oh, all right, like we'll give you the producer feedback. We'll get the money made up in the back end. And most often you don't actually have that happen at all. And so I think over the course of the first three films that um, we made, I made a total of $25,000, which is not a great living. Um, and so it ends up being like $7,000 a year. Um, so once that initial um, funding was through, you know, again, Barry and the group of investors were really generous and let me continue on with Safe House Pictures without them. And, and Joby um, and I decided to move to LA and decided to Joby join Safe House Pictures, and we decided to um, uh, change the model of the company and really have it be something that we are now pitching it not as an independent film company. Those bringing movies to Sundance, Toronto, and you know, getting a love letter in the New York Times, but no one seeing and no one paying us any money for it. Felt like, well, what if we bring that New York hustle to Hollywood filmmaking? And, you know, I've, I've been told many times in the course of my career, it's amazing how you're so persistent and you're not annoying. I don't know how you do that. Um, but I think that we've always sort of felt like, you know, we we, have, we didn't start off in the incoming phone call business. Like there's so many people who came up in Hollywood, came up as executives and they already know all the people. They already have all the contacts. And we just had a, you know, we had a, we had a 
figure it out on the fly. We had to fake it to make it. We had to make all those contacts on our own sort of, you know, army crawl our way into having some success. Um, and, and again, I think that part of that is like continuing to pitch your story, continuing to pitch your vision and the, and the pitch and the vision is constantly evolving. You touched on a lot of, of breadcrumbs. You may have already answered part of this, but like what specifically happened between my blind brother and King Arthur? It seems like there's a big difference in those films. You kind of shifted maybe away from some of the independent stuff to the bigger features. Uh, what kind of happened there and how did it happen? Yeah, well, that's exactly the moment that I'm talking about. And my blind brother is interesting because um, Sophie Goodhart, who's an incredible writer director, uh, we've been trying to get her movie made for a while. And so I've, uh, so often happens. Um, you know, we had so many different people attached to that movie, um, but never had all three and we needed all three to get the green light. So it was, it was constantly, we'd have, you know, two people and it was so exciting. We'd be almost about to make it. And then uh, it didn't happen. So by the time that my brother was happening, we had already pivoted away from independent film, but felt, you know, committed to Sophie and committed to finishing that thought. Um, at the same time, we were already in LA and we were now at the, probably at that moment, we had a deal at Warner Brothers and we were, you know, part of the mandate of having that deal was not to be making movies like My Blind Brother, but to be making movies like King Arthur. And so Joby had had, um, I remember really well, he had sold a pitch for the Battle of Britain to Ridley Scott and he had had a great meeting with Ridley and it was like, oh my God, Joby's English, Ridley Scott's a hero. Um, making a movie about English history with Ridley Scott was like a dream come true. And uh, but then Joby had this idea for a really ambitious way into doing King Arthur that had the potential to become something uh, like a multi-film franchise and something that Warner Brothers really leaned into. Mm. And I remember this like moment of like wringing hands where it felt like, how can you walk away from a really Scott movie and, and do King Arthur? But King Arthur was just on such a rail and they, and it, he wrote a first draft and it was immediately greenlit. It was, it was bananas. Like occasionally those kinds of things happen. Um, and, and I think that with that and going through that ride, which was a really colorful and exciting and wild experience. Um, I think that we, we sort of really were able to understand the, the machine of Hollywood and how to tell stories. And you don't always get to tell the story that you wanted to tell at the outset. Um, that's true for independent films as well. I mean, it's always, it's always, um, like with anything in life, it's about, um, getting the right partnership and, 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 and making sure you, you share the same vision. But as these projects become bigger and more expensive on some of them, depending on what your station is at that moment in time, you don't necessarily have the, the power to sort of control your own vision. And you, you're also, um, on a ride and you, you know, you have people around you that are, um, that have more experience. And so you start to let them, uh, take the charge. And then at a certain moment in your career that flips, you know? Um, but so all of that stuff was, we were really at the, the birth of, of our doing those bigger scaled movies. Um, and, um, and it was, it was a really moment of, um, it was a fun year to sort of have that. I think that right around then we had underground our first TV show, which was something that was, um, you know, Joby and I had always wanted to do something about the underground railroad. And it was so um, while we had actually been talking to Akiva Goldsman, who we were partnered with at the time, about you know different ways in, different stories that we had researched. And I had a general with Misha Green who said that she was working about something um, on the Underground Railroad. And I was like obsessed. And I actually, I, I like, again, to the point of, of being persistent to the point of, you know, just shy of being annoying. I, I very politely stalked her and um, read the script, fell in love with it. 
And she had other people that she was pretty much committed to making the show with. But we, we, um, I think we just kept on talking to her until we almost drove her crazy. I think that she relented <laughs> in a way, but I think that she saw that passion um, that again, comes from that sort of New York hustle and feeling like we can't just be, you know, if we really believe in something, we're going to fight for it until the end. And to the point of my, my blind brother, that really means until the end, like we don't ever, uh, one thing we pride ourselves on is not just being a heat seeking missile. If we believe in something, even if everyone said no a thousand times, we're going to stick with it until it gets made. Um, and so that's where you get my blind brother at the same time you get, you know, underground emerging. And that was something that like, as we were trying to figure out how do you tell a historical tale when, when history is so hard to tell in, in television, in terms of trying to sell it to a buyer, because everyone's feeling like, oh, period, people don't really show up for that. Is that going to feel, is that, you know, the subject of slavery, is that going to feel too, too tough for our viewers? And we had this moment when Joby said, you know, this is, well, the reframe is this is the greatest prison break that's ever happened in this country. And then so with that slight reframe, it felt like, okay. And, and, and Misha's, Misha's script that she wrote with Joe Pekoski already had that flavor. I mean, it started off with um, like the first line of it was, was mentioning Kanye West's um, black skinhead and, and already had like a punk rock attitude and already had, you know, that sort of um, that genre feeling. But I think that that just that, that again, that sort of easy way to pitch it this is what the vision is. It suddenly everything sort of lined up behind that. And we were able to, to make that show. So it seems like a risk to go from indie to big pictures, but or big blockbusters, but now also it's like Monarch feels like a, a series blockbuster. So how does that all work in like layman's terms? Like how does that make sense where it's still profitable for Apple or is it just that Apple's still in an experimental stage? Well, I think that what's exciting about Monarch is it, you know, it allows us to really combine so much of what Safe House has done historically, which is, um, you know, coming out of the the birth of Safe House Pictures, which is really doing the character driven films that go to film festivals and then try to find a buyer from there, and then combining it with a big spectacle that certainly we were able to do in King Arthur and Joby and his career, you know, having done the Flash, Transformers, you know, so on and so forth, Obi Wan Kenobi, and and really having uh, been working in that world of big VFX. Um, it felt like such a great opportunity to be able to, you know, we have 10 hours of television. So we, we, when we were looking at the show and we had the opportunity, a legendary called us and said that they had Matt Fraction on, who's obviously an, an incredible uh, um, comic book writer. And he was going to be uh, developing the show. And did we want to come on? We, we felt like, well, of course, um, not only as a fan of the IP and a, as a fan of Matt's, but as an opportunity to do something that was sort of a challenge, which is how, you know, what, what the movies have done so well, um, so often is have these big spectacles, have these big monster on monster fight. And even with the generous budget that we had, we were never going to be able to do something like that. So then what are you going to do with the story? And Matt Fraction had already outlined this idea of because the films take period over, um, you know, during it starts off in 2014 and you're coming up to the present, you're either going into the future or as he would talk about, you could dance in the raindrops of the movies. And so what we thought was really interesting was to, look at what the what the characters when you see Gareth Edwards 2014 film is what's happening to the characters that you're not seeing in the film like what's happening to the you know the the pedestrians on on the street as Godzilla's you know stomping through San Francisco what's happening in their lives what's going on there and what is this organization monarch that we you know see just snippets of initially but then by the time that we're in uh, King and the Monsters everyone has like logos <laughs> 
and it's very sort of public. And so how did it become what it became? And it felt like a great opportunity to not compete with the features and the spectacle that we have our monsters for, for those monsters fan. But we're also, we talk a lot about the fact that in our show, sometimes a monster is 3000 feet tall and sometimes it's the person sitting next to you. And so that we get to sort of have, you know, in the title legacy of monsters, we're really looking at both the past and the history of monarch. We're looking at the past and the present of families and, and how we talk a lot about how hurt people hurt people. And, um, and I think that like these sort of ideas are things that typically were the, the ways that we get to think about, you know, really sort of meaty character dramas in independent film. And you sort of have to, to curb on when you're doing a big, bigger, bigger spectacle event movies, because you only have an hour and a half and you, you're able to tell, you know, a couple of arcs and hopefully get in a reversal and something that feels like it's really profound if you can get it in there. But over 10 hours, you actually really have an opportunity to do that. Um, and I've also said, you know, my, um, my favorite soap opera ever isn't like an all my children or a guiding light. It's game of Thrones. Like I think that genre allows you to do these really big stories about family and betrayal and love and, you know, uh, and uh, lies and, and war and all these kinds of things that are so juicy and genre can do so well. And it always can tell us, you know, can give us a lens into the truth of, of humanity in a way that doesn't feel oppressive because you're also on a globe trotting adventure with monsters. We talked uh, about your like overall career arc a bit. If you were, does it feel like those first like three to five movies were necessary to get to the blockbuster point? Like if you were starting today, fresh, busting through the wall again, which I'm sure, I sure sounds daunting. Could you kind of skip to the bigger ones or would you have, like, how do you kind of see passing along advice to young producers breaking in today? Yeah, I think that particularly, well, I think that everyone has their own path and their own story. I think that one of the things that for me that was really helpful is that because I had to do so much on my own, I had to figure things out on my own. I always sort of envy people that had a great mentor. Um, and, um, but I also had with it, not, I didn't have one great mentor. I had lots of moments of having mentors. And I also, um, with independent film, you have to do so much on your own. Um, so I would do the first draft of a budget and I would do, you know, I would actually take a template that was a, a legal agreement and I would do it and then have it just reviewed by an attorney. Cause you don't have any money to actually have it done properly. And, you know, when you're, um, when you're on set and you have an actor who's doing, you know, something that's sort of tricky or, or has like a, you know, a sort of a diva ask, I felt like I've never put on the PA, I would do it myself. And I think that, that one of the things that coming up in independent film really allowed us to do was to fully um, embrace how valuable it is to have no ego. Um, you know, we were doing something, uh, we're working with, um, I don't even know, I actually maybe can't mention it because it hasn't been announced yet, but we're working with an A-list filmmaker and and we were doing sort of um, uh, early shooting before it became official and um, and chairs need to be moved. And um, and I just started moving the chairs. And I think that some people like at a certain level of your career, they're like waiting for like, well, where's the PA? Are they going to come and fix this problem for me? And I feel like having come up in independent film, it's like you just have to jump in there and do it. And and I also really, I think coming up in independent film, because you have no money, one of the things that you realize as a resource is valuing people and uh, and and making sure they know they're valued and feeling like they're appreciated and, you know, trying to know everyone's name that you can. And I'm terrible with names. So I'm, this is something I'm always working on. 
Um, but trying to, you know, have it be if like we can't pay you money, well, how is this experience going to be something that is something you look back on and 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 have enjoyed? Um, and so that I think was a great foundation for us so that once you get into bigger films, I think that one of the things that has always been um that I'm always proud of us for being able to do is that we we don't have we don't traffic in any of that bullshit that you know some other people that had more of a silver spoon origin story. Um, have it's just never been on the table for us not because we're, we're uh, more ethical or have superior morality it's just because that's that's how we came up and that's you know that was kind of our only our only choice and and it's um but i also it makes us feel valued to make you know it's, it's that bounce back where you, we have three boys and talking to them about like when you do something for someone else it feels selfless but it actually makes you feel good so it, is it selfless it's you know it's a good it's the good kind of um way to be a human, but it's not always, uh, you can't always just cleanly say it's selfless because it does give you a bounce back. And so, um, I think that we've always, um, I, I think that that's been really great for us, you know, being able to read a budget, um, you know, VFX is still something, even though I've now been able to, to really dig in there. I think it's still such a learning curve because the technology is always changing. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's always the, the thing about film and television that I think is always, I always say that, you know, people to, to, ward off dementia will do crossword puzzles or sudoku or whatever it is but i feel like it, with producing every single time you're doing something you're kind of always starting from scratch mm -hmm. you may have made the film a film before but you you know maybe you're having a new um you know relationship issue that you've never really quite come across before or maybe there's a story issue that you have to sort of think outside the box in a way that you've never had to do before there's always some new challenge that always you always feel like you're a beginner again and again I think that, you know, having come from independent film where you have to problem solve in such a different way because you can't throw money at a problem has always been so beneficial for us. So I'm actually, I'm writing my second book right now. The The title is called The Self-Reliant Artist. A lot of your story sounds like principles that I'm, I'm kind of looking to. Do you have any advice for those people? So obviously relationships are important, uh, mentorships, all the advice you can, all the help you can find, but you still need like that intrinsic motivation to kind of be a leader. Um, any advice for those people who are having trouble with the the longevity of persistence that's required in this business? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's it's so it's so interesting because I feel like um, it's sort of twenty odd years into the into the business, and and there's been so many. I feel like um, the same way that you sort of see when you someone explains the stock market to you, and they say you should keep your money in long term because it it go, will go like this, but it's going like this. You know, um, I think that that sort of jagged up and down, but always trending upwards is something that I think that if you stick with it, that 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 can be a path. I don't know that it's a guaranteed one, but I think that there's always all those sort of cliches about trying and failing. Like you can't succeed if you never try. Trying doesn't guarantee success, but you can guarantee that you can't have success without trying. And I think that like having the the you know I got knocked down, I'm gonna get back upness. Um, having that, that ability to be resilient, to not take it personally, because even if it feels really personal, it's, it so often does, especially in a creative art form, especially for writers and directors and art and, uh, and actors, you know, rejection, 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 or criticism or whatever it is can really be wearing. But I think that there's, there's a skill set of being able to start to take some of the, the criticism, but not all of it, take some of it so that you can continue to grow but when you take it, you're not seeing it as an evaluation of your soul. You're seeing it as an evaluation of your work, which should, you know, it's, it, and that's hard to start to um, differentiate because they can feel so 
uh, entangled and because they often are so entangled. But I think that, um, you know, allowing yourself to recognize that that it is going to be hard and you are going to go through failure and you are going to have moments where you feel like, why do I do this? This sucks. Um, and I think that just knowing that that inner passion, like always sort of feeding that and and always keep trying and always keep, you know, like, I, again, I have a movie that I just have at Netflix and I've been working on it for this one will be the the long, the oldest one, but arguably 15 to 17 years, different versions of it, but always believed in the story. And um, and and I think it'll actually I think this will be <laughs> hopefully this will be the, this will be the time that it actually gets made. And I think it's also sort of met its moment in time. You know, I think that there's some things that we have just in the back of our heads, uh, stories that we want to tell. And we've tried and we failed and we tried and we failed. But there might be a moment in time when now it actually feels really relevant or there might be a relationship I now have at a studio where I know that that person's going to like the story too. And I think that, um, you know, all, all responses are subjective. And so often what can be frustrating um, as a storyteller, be it a writer, director, actor, producer, is that sometimes people don't want to tell the same story as you. And, and But I think that if you believe in the story, you might find the moment when you find that partner that wants to tell the same story as you. And you can continue sort of build that momentum. Um, and so I think being patient um, is, is key. I mean, you obviously can't do that with just one project, otherwise you would starve. But I, I you know, I have many babies that I've sort of like put on pause for a minute, but then found, you know, in having a conversation with an actor and they said, this is what they're looking for. I'm like, you know, I had this thing, actually. It's funny you say that I've had this thing. I've always loved, you know, never got off the ground. And so I think that again, um, that patience, that resilience, that not, you know, not being afraid that a, that a pass means that you're wrong. It might mean that you need to do more work. It might not mean anything. It might just mean that you got to try again. Um, sometimes, you know, it, like there, there's, um, that I always love that saying that if, if, um, eight people tell you you're drunk, you should probably lie down. And I think there is a certain moment when you kind of have to say like, uncle, uncle, I can see this is not, nobody wants to tell this story, but again, maybe they will in 10 years. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach and learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.